welcome to the Reality Taboo Podcast, where no topic is off limits. It's December 23rd, 2023. I'm Jeff, and I'm flying solo for now. Stay tuned, though, and Ness just might make an appearance a little bit later. So this episode, we will be covering Anderson versus Griswold. That's the Colorado Supreme Court case which kicked Trump off the Colorado presidential ballot. So before we get started, quick reminder, if you find this show valuable, please like, subscribe, and share all that good stuff. Thank you very much for listening. So the court issued its ruling on Tuesday. I have read the entire thing, so I'll mostly be summarizing the court's reasoning. Or for a lot of people, reasoning might be the wrong word. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will think that the court had its preconceived ideas of how this um, thing should go, that Trump should be disqualified, and it was just a matter of working backwards from that predetermined conclusion to find a way to get him off the ballot. um, I have my own opinions about that, but for now, I just want to do my best to summarize what is a quite lengthy 100-page-plus Um, written court opinion, and you can decide for yourself whether you buy um, what the court's selling. Before I get into the actual ruling itself, I thought it'd be useful to talk about Colorado uh, as a state. I am very familiar with the state, so um, I think I I can maybe talk about some things, uh, misconceptions that people have about Colorado. Obviously, most people think, when they think Colorado, they think the Rocky Mountains, they think wide, beautiful um, landscapes, and that that's certainly uh, true of a lot of the state, but I don't think people um, recognize that the eastern half of Colorado is uh, doesn't have any mountains. It's mostly flat plains. It's uh, really, it's a lot, the eastern half of Colorado is a lot more like the western half of Kansas than it's like the western half of Colorado. And uh, that goes not just for the 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 natural environment, but also the political, cultural, demographic makeup. The eastern half of Colorado is generally uh, conservative, votes red, um, and... Uh, that's true also of not just the eastern half of Colorado, but a lot of the western half too is uh, if geographically a lot of it is conservative as well. And that's you can see why the, the Lauren Boebert, uh, one of the bigger MAGA people in Congress, is actually from the western slope, the western uh, rifle Colorado, which is in the western part of Colorado. So um, it's certainly overall it's a blue state, um, but... There are a lot. Uh, it's a diverse state in terms of uh, in terms of geography, in terms of political leanings, and it's really just the the Denver metro area, the Denver County, and the surrounding counties that are so overwhelmingly blue and have uh, such a large population that it it floods, it overwhelms the rest of the state. All right, now let's get into the actual opinion. As I said, it is called Anderson versus Griswold. It was decided by the Colorado Supreme Court on December 19, 2023. 
and uh, I thought it was worth devoting an entire episode to because it really is, um, I think it's going to go, no, regardless of what happens next, it is going to go down in American history as a, a seminal event, I, I do believe. Um, it will be very interesting to see where things go from here, but um, for now, let's just look at the opinion itself. So this started... Um, in district courts, that is the trial level court in the in Denver County in Colorado. So the plaintiffs in this case, that is the people who brought the actual case, filed the petition, initiated the court in the first place, was um, a group of Colorado electors who were eligible to vote in the Republican presidential primary. So the petition asked the courts, the district court, the trial court in Denver to rule that Trump um, was not allowed to appear on the Colorado Republican presidential primary ballot. And uh, the whole basis of the case was this Colorado election code, um, which was passed in 1992 by uh, the Colorado legislature. And it uh, so the case is uh, based on that uh, election code is asking that the Colorado Secretary of State remove Trump from the ballot. Um, the Secretary of State, so the Secretary of State it has to sign off on um, candidates who appear on the ballot, and the uh, electoral code. Um, elect, excuse me, the election code lays out some of those procedures for uh, eligibility. In addition to the Colorado election code, the petitioners also point to the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, so it's actually Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which uh, to be honest, I don't remember much about because the 14th Amendment is known primarily for uh, the first two sections, which deal with um, basically uh, the aftermath of the Civil War, extending certain um, procedural due process rights to the states, and in a nutshell, um, vastly expanding the power of the federal government in relation to the states. And so section I'm just going to read section 3 of the 14th amendment because that is uh, every the entire case hinges on for the for this section 3 of the 14th amendment. That is the um, entire basis for the Colorado Supreme Court kicking Trump off the ballot. So here it is in its entirety. Quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. 
Now, the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, like I said, uh, right shortly after the end of the Civil War. So the first thing you might notice about that section is that while it specifically mentions um, representatives and senators, it does not specifically mention the president. So the threshold question really is whether the president is covered under this section three. And um, the short answer that, at least according to the Colorado Supreme Court, is yes, uh, this does cover the president. And the other, uh, the, the gist of the opinion is that uh, the events of January 6, 2021 constituted an, quote, a, quote, insurrection, and that Trump, quote, engaged in insurrection against the Constitution, and therefore he is ineligible. Um, the first issue I am going to address is whether um, president should be included under Section 3 of the 14th amendment i actually think that it should um can't it's hard to say for sure what was intended um and it's it's very difficult when there's all these different uh competing interests at the time republicans democrats um pro-slavery anti-slavery people all trying to come together to pass something it's hard to say what the that i mean it there could have been many different uh intents uh, it, intentions regarding whether the president should be covered. Um, now, I, something that does point the other direction is there was apparently uh, an earlier draft of Section Three that specifically uh, mentioned that included the presidency. So this would suggest that the drafters did intend to omit the presidency in the version that ultimately passed. Otherwise, why would they have taken it out? So. Um, now that I think about it, I, I really, I think it could go either way on that, uh, whether the presidency should be covered. But, um, so the next issue I want to address is whether the, a state, um, even has the authority, um, to remove a president from the ballot. Now, again, I have to say, I, I think they do. And the reason I say that, um, starts with article two, section one of the United States constitution, which, uh, in relevant part, states that each state is authorized to appoint presidential electors, quote, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. So this is a good reminder that the Constitution does not provide for uh, direct election by the people of the state. It, um, it lets the legislature decide um, the the process for appointing presidential electors. There's always been that intermediary between the citizens who vote and the people who actually um, go to Washington and cast the state's vote for the president. The system, obviously, that every state now has is that uh, the electors are bound to abide by the will of the voters despite what the individual electors actually think uh, or actually believe, and it's a winner-take-all system. But um, Ultimately, the state really, as a sovereign, states are, at least as the system was set up originally, states are sovereign entities. They are 
Um, they're not subsidiaries of the federal government. They are independent sovereign entities. Um, but I don't want to get into a whole states' rights debate right now. But suffice to say, I think it is a fair reading of the Constitution that a state has the right to determine the procedure and the process for um, how that state how that state is going to vote regarding the presidential election. So I have to agree with what the court ultimately says on this issue. I'm going to read. Um, from the opinion, absent a separate constitutional constraint, then states may exercise their plenary appointment power to limit presidential ballot access to those candidates who are constitutionally qualified to hold the office of president. Now, uh, typically, in the past at least, those kinds of uh, constitutional qualifications would include things like uh, being a citizen, um, residency requirements, age, not whether you led an insurrection. But um, another thing I wanted to point out too, I think it's um, the court um, referenced Judge Neil Gorsuch, who uh, before Tr- President Trump appoint, uh, nominated him for the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court. He was a uh, judge in the Federal District Court of Colorado. And he actually ruled in a case, um, the the in this case, the Griswold case, the Colorado Supreme Court quotes Gorsuch from a case um, ten, from 2012, and quote uh, this is so this is Gorsuch saying uh, ruling in that 2012 case quote a state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process that permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. Um, I think they, the court, the judges in this case, knew that uh, this case was going to end up in the Supreme Court. So maybe they planted that there to perhaps make it harder for Gorsuch to then perhaps or seemingly contradict what he ruled um, in 2012. But who knows? And so uh, the Colorado Election Code um, requires that candidates have to be, quote, qualified. And so that means, at least according to the Colorado Supreme Court, that means that the candidate has to be qualified under the U.S. Constitution to assume the duties of the office of president. So the bottom line on this issue, according to the court, is that um, the provisions of the Colorado Election Code uh, advance Colorado's, quote, legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process by allowing the Secretary of State to exclude from the ballot presidential candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. And uh, the court also concludes that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing in the sense that its disqualification provision attaches without congressional action. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, It's basically saying that the um, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment itself is all that's needed here. It doesn't need an additional act of Congress to specify more detail of how this procedure would actually work. It says it's enough in itself. Um, Colorado looks at that provision. They determine um, that somebody, that a candidate committed an insurrection, and that's all they need. They can make that determination. They don't have to follow a specific procedure uh, laid out by Congress. Another interesting part of this case is that the Colorado 
district court, that is the trial court level, not the, the Supreme Court, but the trial court level, allowed into evidence the January 6th report issued by Congress. That was the um, Democratic-led, along with so-called Republican Liz Cheney investigation um, that concluded that Donald Trump had engaged or led an insurrection. And so that report uh, was allowed into evidence. And obviously, Trump's lawyers tried to get that, um, just not, uh, not allow that report to be admitted into evidence for obvious reason. And so the court uh, said that the Supreme Court looked at that and said, no, it's fine that that report went in. Uh, they said the party challenging the admissibility of a public or agency report bears the burden of demonstrating that the report is not trustworthy. So um, there's a lot of things I could go into about the rules of evidence, but um, suffice to say the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that it was that it complied with the rules of evidence and that it should be, should have been allowed under uh, into into evidence. All right, next I want to talk about the insurrection and what it means to engage in an insurrection. So I'm mostly going to read from the court here. Um, so the the phrase engaged in and the word insurrection are not defined in the Constitution. Now the Colorado Supreme Court ruled, quote, it suffices for us to conclude that any definition of insurrection for purposes of Section 3, that's the 14th of the 14th Amendment, would encompass a concerted and public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the U.S. government from taking the actions necessary to accomplish a peaceful transfer of power in this country. The record amply established that the events of January 6th constituted a concerted and public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the U.S. government from taking the actions necessary to accomplish the peaceful transfer of power in this country. And this is the court's conclusion, quote, We conclude that the foregoing evidence, the great bulk of which was undisputed at trial, established that President Trump engaged in insurrection. President Trump's direct and express efforts over several months exhorting his supporters to march to the Capitol to prevent, to prevent what he falsely characterized as an alleged fraud on the people of this country were indisputably, uh, indisputably overt and voluntary. Moreover, the evidence amply showed that President Trump undertook all these actions to aid and further a common unlawful purpose that he himself conceived and set in motion prevent Congress from certifying the 2020 presidential election and stop the peaceful transfer of power. Next topic I wanted to discuss um, that the court actually devotes a decent amount of, of uh, ink to is the free speech issue because um, on the surface, it seems like it could be a major free speech issue. Trump, uh, just like any other citizen of the United States, has um, free speech protected by the First Amendment, and he was expressing those views, and now he's being punished. So how does that square with the free speech protection um, in the First Amendment, which uh, despite all the issues... Um, as I certainly have with the United States, um, we still do have, from what I understand, the strongest free speech protections in the world. Um, 
And so I take these kinds of issues very seriously. So um, let's look at uh, the Brandenburg test. Now this um, is the primary test used when um, perhaps when um, potentially violent speech is is at issue. Um, Brandenburg versus Ohio was a uh, Supreme Court case from I believe it was the 1960s and it is still the main test used to determine whether speech is protected or not under the First Amendment. So it deals with it deals with whether speech is protected by the First Amendment. So um, there's a three-part test. The um, first is, did the speech explicitly or implicitly encourage the use of violence or lawless action? Number two, did the speaker intend that the speech would result in the use of violence or lawless action? And three, whether the imminent use of violence or lawless action was the likely result of the speech. And so the interesting thing here, I thought, um, was the court went back years and concluded that Trump created, quote, a general atmosphere of political violence. Uh, that was uh, quite a stretch to me. They Instead of just looking at the um, direct uh, events surrounding January 6, 2021, to determine whether Trump uh, incited the riot, which presumably would have only looked at what he said on January 6th, or maybe you, maybe you could go back to November uh, 2020 to get the full context. But it, rather than that, the court went back years. Um, at least, I believe they went back all the, they went back at least as far as 2015 during Trump's original campaign. And here's where I, I do think the case, the court case goes off the rails in terms of credibility. I was kind of surprisingly up until this point, I was nodding along as I read this. I thought this is, I mean, I might not agree with this uh, or, or like the result, but this is pretty solid reasoning. But this is where, in my opinion, things kind of go off, start going off the rails. So the a district court that now remember that's the trial court that's that's the um, I guess let me just take a brief minute to just uh, explain how uh, the difference between what a uh, the top court supreme court does in a state versus the trial court or district court the district court is the trial level court that's where uh, evidence is given testimony is given things are admitted or not admitted into evidence there's um, sometimes a jury depending on the type of case and both factual and legal um, conclusions are made. Now, when it gets up to an appellate court, typically the appellate court is just looking at the legal findings, whether the legal findings were um, accurate. They don't. They don't typically assess uh, the fact. They don't typically look at the factual uh, findings and assess whether they agree with those or not. Now, there are exceptions, um, but generally, uh, the court is much more concerned about looking at was with the legal conclusions uh, correct, not whether. Uh, the factual findings were correct or accurate. Um, so at the district court level, they apparently they put a lot of weight on this this uh, what they called an extremism expert. So I, I guess that was a, a an expert witness that they that they relied that the um, the petitioners relied upon. And so um, this extremism expert, made a lot of um, somewhat questionable uh, conclusions, I would say. So 
he said that Trump's calls to, quote, fight, which most politicians would mean only symbolically, were, when spoken by Trump, literal calls to violence by these groups, these extremists, so-called extremist groups, while Trump's statements negating that sentiment were insincere and existed to obfuscate and create plausible deniability, and that Trump's speech took place in the context of a pattern of Trump's knowing, quote, encouragement and promotion of violence to develop and deploy a shared, coded language with his violent supporters. Um, and so, in short, the district court found that Trump's speech at the Ellipse, that was in, in Washington, D.C., was uh, his speech, wa- quote, was understood by a portion of the crowd as a call to arms. And so the Su- Colorado Supreme Court concluded, quote, President Trump incited and encouraged the use of violence and lawless action to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. The tenor of President Trump's messages to his supporters in exhorting them to travel to Washington, D.C. on January 6th was obvious and unmistakable. The allegedly rigged election was an act of war, and those victimized by it had an obligation to fight back and to fight aggressively. And President Trump's supporters did not miss or misunderstand the message. The cavalry was coming to fight. This sounds to me more like a op-ed or an opinion piece in the New York Times or MSNBC or on MSNBC or the Washington Post or Slate. Uh, it sounds more like that than it does a court, and so there are so many uh, leaps leaps being made um, because I think they. The bottom line is that there's Trump did not very clearly um, tell his supporters to be violent. And and I think that the biggest roadblock the court had was Trump's statement, which they, to their credit, well, I guess somewhat to their credit, they kind of briefly mention it. Um, They do address that Trump uh, at one point during the speech at the Ellipse on January 6, 2021, Trump said, quote, Everyone here will soon be marching to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. So uh, that obviously is a big roadblock for them concluding that uh, Trump was directly inciting violence when in the speech he says peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Uh, Despite this, the court uh, says it's not persuaded. Uh, that the district court erred in the I should say the Supreme Court was not persuaded that the district court erred in finding that the first prong of the Brandenburg test was met, and so they the Supreme Court says that they agree that President Trump intended that his speech would result in the use of violence or lawless action on January sixth to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. So. It's making a lot of assumptions and drawing conclusions and assuming, well, Trump didn't actually mean what he actually what he said, and he had this whole um, coded language that certain of his followers would uh, be able to pick up on, and he's been uh, creating this shared um, language, coded language, or he's been creating this coded language with a select of his hardcore followers all the way back to at least 2015, and to me, it's, it's a big stretch, but that's what the court said.
So I'm going to read one more passage here that sums up what the court ruled, uh, at least the majority uh, ruled. We'll get to the dissent in just a minute. So the majority ruled, quote, We conclude that because President Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3, that's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it would be a wrongful act under the election code for the Secretary of State to list President Trump as a candidate on the presidential primary ballot. Therefore, the secretary may not list President Trump's name on the 2024 presidential primary ballot, nor may she count any write-in votes cast for him. So I'm going to briefly discuss the dissent. Now, this Colorado Supreme Court has seven justices, four ruled um, in favor of kicking Trump off the ballot, three judges dissented and said he should have been uh, allowed on the ballot. So I'm going to just briefly summarize some of the, uh, the each of the dissenting judges has their own opinion. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into each of them individually, but I think it's uh, based on my reading, the primary objection is, is due process. They say that this um, opinion by the Colorado, the, the, by the majority did not is is defective on due process and procedural grounds. It was there was not enough time to adequately um, hear all of the issues, and um, the Colorado Election Code was never it was never designed to hear a claim like this about whether a uh, a president is disqualified from running based on leading an insurrection. It, it, the Colorado Election Code was just clearly not designed to address an issue like this and um they make the the dissent says that procedural due process is one of the aspects of america's democracy that sets this country apart i agree with that and um i'm going to read a quote from uh one of the justices dissent um he says, quote, thus, based on its interpretation of Section 3, our court sanction these, sanctions these makeshift proceedings employed by the district court below, which lacked basic discovery, the ability to subpoena documents and compel witnesses, workable timeframes to adequately investigate and develop defenses, and the opportunity for a fair trial. To adjudicate a federal constitutional claim, a complicated one at that, masquerading as a run-of-the-mill state election code claim. So I think what uh, the justice is getting at here is that the court is making this conclusion that Trump engaged in an insurrection. That's something that um, to adequately be uh, dealt with, it's really more like a criminal law case, which if it was uh, in any criminal law case, you would have far more protections. And uh, as he said, you would be able to call witnesses, you'd be able to subpoena uh, witnesses, you'd be able to su submit a lot more documents. There's all kinds of things that uh, the time frame, it would have been a much longer trial, much more involved. Um, but instead, they kind of, the the petitioner smuggled in this really what should is more like a criminal case. They smuggled it into via this uh, Colorado election code, which again was not designed to address anything like this. So they basically used the Colorado election code to smuggle in a completely unrelated um, issue. So on that same note uh, regarding the, the procedural defections in this case, um, the dissent ruled, I'm going to read another quote, 
Section 5 of the 14th Amendment specifically gives Congress absolute power to enact legislation to enforce Section 3. My colleagues in the majority concede that there is currently no legislation enacted by Congress to enforce Section 3. This is of no moment to them, however, because they conclude that Section 3 is self-executing and that the states are free to apply their own procedures, including compressed ones in an election code, to enforce it. So again, uh, I think the, the point that's being made here is that um, Congress need the U.S. Congress, that is, um, needs to pass specific legislation outlining how this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, how that's going to be adjudicated, how specifically, what are the procedures and the due process protections that need to be put into place to adequately ascertain whether someone engaged in an insurrection. That's a, a very huge accusation and uh, for a huge accusation, it needs to have um, it needs to have more specific safeguards, and that a state doesn't have the right to just uh, take that section and f- just use whatever procedures, however haphazard or makeshift, as he calls them, uh, just use whatever procedures they want to to adjudicate something like that. There needs to Congress needs to address that, um, and. Uh, on that point, uh, well, uh, on a somewhat related point, there is a federal statute that specifically criminalizes insurrection, and um, it requires that anyone convicted of engaging in such conduct be fined or imprisoned and be disqualified from holding public office. So there is a specific criminal federal criminal statute that addresses insurrection. So presumably... If you're going to disqualify someone from running for president on the basis of that that person engaging in an insurrection, you first that person would have to be found guilty uh, in a criminal court with all the due process protections that go along with that. They would have to be found guilty of an insurrection, and that obviously doesn't ha- didn't happen. Trump has not, with all these uh, criminal cases going on, Trump has not been charged with. With uh, committing an insurrection, um, there's some conspiracy charges. Uh, there's the Jack Smith case going on. There's the there's the court case in Georgia. But he has not uh, in all of those cases he has not been accused of an insurrection, let alone been found guilty of an insurrection. And yet the Colorado Supreme Court, or the Colorado court system, has taken it upon itself to take it upon itself to conclude that Trump engaged in an insurrection. This is the Reality Taboo Podcast. Ness is here now. I was practicing my yo-yoing. I miss a lot with it. I'm back. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, what uh, What's your take on this Colorado Supreme Court decision? I'm happy with it. I think political accelerationism is what we need. I think political dissolution is a question of when, not if. And this is a great first step or third or fourth or fifth step. In that direction. As we alluded to last week, it was a question of how Trump being removed from contention was going to be achieved, not a question of if it would. And so uh, while I appreciate the analysis you've given over the last 30 minutes, I don't really think it's important in the grand scheme of things because it doesn't matter what justification was used what inputs were put into the process, the output was already determined beforehand. 
So you're saying that they had a decision they wanted to reach from the beginning and uh, they just worked backwards to build up a scaffold to get to the predetermined outcome. Yeah, to hang them on. I think that's perfectly stated. Isn't there an argument that this doesn't really matter because Colorado is a very blue state? It was never going to go for Trump anyway. So what difference does this actually even make in the election? If Colorado, a plus 10 Biden state, does this, it doesn't matter. But if Michigan, a plus 5 Biden state, does it, it will matter. And it could matter in a very direct way. So maybe you're familiar with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is a movement to have states pledge their electoral votes to whichever presidential candidate wins the national popular vote. And Colorado is one of the states that has passed such legislation. So, uh, I think there's like 19 or 20 of them that have up to this point. The closest state in 2020 and 2016 that's done so is Minnesota. In Minnesota, Trump lost to Biden by seven points, which is almost exactly w- what Trump's edge now at this point in 2024 is relative to his deficit in 2020 at the same point in time. So if for the sake of argument, we shift the entire vote seven points in Trump's favor from 2020 to 2024, Minnesota moves from plus seven Biden to a toss up. And so we could conceivably have a situation where Minnesota goes 50.5 Trump, 49.5 Biden, excluding third party. And so it looks like Trump wins Minnesota, but because Minnesota has that national popular vote interstate compact in place, Minnesota is legally bound to pledge its delegates to Biden. And why do I assume that Biden will will win the popular vote, even in a situation where the vote has shifted seven points in Trump's favor? Well, it's because Trump will be off the ballot in Colorado, which means all of Colorado's three plus million votes. And if other states, so we think Colorado's a blue state, it doesn't matter, but if other states follow suit, imagine a state like California strikes Trump from the ballot. Now the national vote total question is totally thrown out the window. And so any other states that might otherwise be close that are forced to pledge their their delegates not to who wins the state, but who wins the national vote. Another implication from this decision is that if Trump is indeed an invalid candidate or is, is ineligible for office, what happens if, despite all the obstacles, he ends up taking the taking the oath of office on January twenty in January twenty twenty five? Presumably, Colorado would be obliged not to follow anything, any orders that issue from the exec, executive branch of the federal government because he's an illegitimate candidate so yeah insurrectionist not my president yeah not colorado's president all right well that's all we have for this episode i am very curious to see where it goes from here when is the united states supreme court going to take this case up how are they going to decide is it going to be unanimous is it going to be split are they going to decide it on free speech grounds is it going to are they going to find some technicality to or are they going to maybe they'll affirm it i mean who knows it'll be really interesting we'll be paying attention Paying attention for the political theater aspect of it, but ultimately none of that matters. Again, what's going to happen is Trump will not be allowed on the ballot, whether it's because of this or something related to this or because he ends up getting JFK'd. One way or the other, he's not going to be allowed to be president. All right, signing off. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.